prosecutions accurate, fair, and legitimate. Many people in Indiana facing felony and misdemeanor charges cannot afford to hire their own attorney. Though the Constitution guarantees citizens the right to representation, are courts adequately delivering on that promise? That's the issue we're going to be talking about today. So this is part of our Justice for All series that WFIU and Barbara are doing, and uh, we have three guests that are joining us, two in the studio and one by phone. Joining us in the studio are David Shercliffe. He is the chief public defender in Lawrence County and also vice chair of the Indiana Public Defender Council Board. And Ann Sutton is with us in the studio. She's chief counsel for the Marion County Public Defenders Agency and the chair of the criminal justice section of the Indiana, Bar, uh, Indiana State Bar Association. And also joining us by phone today is David Carroll, who's executive director of the Sixth Amendment Center in Boston, Massachusetts. You can join us on the show at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join us uh, by email um, at Noon Edition, and you can send in questions of the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Sure. I'm going to let Barbara start the program today because, Barbara, I've been uh, fascinated by your series uh, for the first two parts now, Justice for All, and the third part's coming up next, next week. Next week. Right? So what, what prompted the series, and uh, what have you learned? Um, I'm a general assignment reporter, but I've always really enjoyed reporting on crime in the courts. And I've been wanting to do a story about public defense in Indiana for a long time. Uh, for the longest time, it was going to be a story about the issue with retaining good public defenders um, because of pay and things like that. But once I got into a courtroom, I realized, whoa, that's a really small portion of this story. So um, I've spent quite a few months going to courtrooms throughout the state and just observing what happens and then talking to um, lawyers and defendants, people across the state about what's happened to them and what they're seeing. And it's been pretty eye-opening to see how different public defense is from county to county. All right. Well, let's talk with uh, David and Ann here in the studio first. Um, you heard uh, what Barbara's been finding out. She's going to be asking you guys a lot of questions here in a few minutes. But this, uh, the Indiana system where you know different counties are, are sort of on their own to create a, a public defender system, um, what's the range that you might find in the state? Are there some good counties and some not-so-good counties? Um, unfortunately, yes. Um, I, I would say probably you might be able to generalize a little bit, and some of the bigger counties are probably tend to be a little bit more organized, um, but that doesn't mean that there's some small counties that are also very, very good. But yeah, 92 counties, there's 92 different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we have 92 counties, and 58 of them are right now involved in the uh, Public Defender Commission, which means that they get about 40 percent um, reimbursement for the expenses they they incur as a result of hiring public defenders and 34 counties are not involved in that and basically what that means in general is that those 58 counties have some sort of oversight in that they have to meet certain standards in order to get reimbursed so the quality has to reach a certain level um, where the 34 counties are involved there's basically no oversight probably still um, judge judges are the bosses they hire the defense attorneys that come into their courtrooms and represent the clients you mentioned these standards and that only a small portion of counties in the state abide by those standards. Um, why do you think that that is? Because to someone who hears you could get reimbursed money, it seems like a no, no brainer. Well, um, there's actually 58 counties of the 92, so it's actually a little more than half. But um, 
basically the standards require um, caseloads to be at a certain level, which means if, like, say you can only take 100 cases in a year um, and the prosecutor files 400, then you have to have four lawyers. The minute that goes above 400, then you have to hire another lawyer. And so in order to get the 40% reimbursement, you have to abide by hiring as many lawyers as you need to cover the caseloads. In some of these smaller counties, they struggle with having the funding in general. And since there are no um, caseload limits, they could hire a lawyer for, say, $40,000 and say, every case that's filed in this county, you cover. And they can agree to that. They'll do that. And if they would have to file standards, that might cost them four times as much money to have the amount of lawyers they need in order to cover the caseloads. And unfortunately, that's where most of our county started before the commission came along. Mm -hmm. But just to clarify that, I mean, it sounds to me like... um, so representation in those counties, there might be a lot less time per client if there's only one attorney that's going to cover all those cases. Absolutely. Right. right. Okay. And, and the, the real uh, the catastrophic thing that's going on right now is juvenile, juvenile cases. In juvenile cases, um, very rarely in the counties, especially the ones that aren't um, part of the commission standards, there's not a designated person who does juvenile. There's 40 counties right now in Indiana where there's been no appeals filed in juvenile cases for I don't know how long, which means that there's basically no court of appeals oversight into what's happening in juvenile um, trial cases. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think that's some of the, some of the biggest, um, I think, drawbacks for the juveniles in those, in those counties is there is no um, baseline, there's no oversight, uh, and there's really not a constituency of, of accountability for those people. Mm-hmm. David Carroll, could you uh, sort of set the, give us a little um, outline of where you're coming from? What's the Sixth Amendment Center? The Sixth Amendment Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit um, organization that was set up to help policymakers and criminal justice stakeholders understand what it is they need to do to meet the basic parameters of the Sixth Amendment case law. What that means is we often go into a state or a county um, and do courtroom observations, data collection, and interviews to understand where um, systems are falling short or where they're um, exceeding expectations. And then if we do find deficiencies, to work with policymakers to help remedy those issues. David, your uh, the Sixth Amendment Center came out with this very extensive report last October, I believe it was, around that time, yeah. looking at Indiana's system. It's very long, but if you can give us some of the highlights of what you found when you looked at these several different counties throughout the state. Sure. Just to give your um, listeners some background, um, most people have heard of the 1963 case Gideon versus Wainwright that established the right to counsel um, in this country. Um, What most people don't know is that the Gideon decision also pointed to the 14th Amendment to say that this was a state responsibility, not a local government responsibility. And what that means is, although the U.S. Supreme Court has never been asked if it's okay for a state to offload that obligation onto local governments, what we do know is if they do choose to do so, they must ensure that the local counties not only have the ability to do it, but that they are in fact doing so. And what we uh, established in the report is that uh, Indiana has no real mechanism to ensure that uh, the right to counsel is upheld in its 91 circuit courts, 177 superior courts, and 67 city and town courts. 
Um, in fact, uh, the, the state of Indiana expects all oversight in all those courts to be done by two people, um, which is just an impossibility. What, David, would you say the, the collateral consequences of having a system like this are for the people who are you know, going in and out of the courtroom every day? Well, I think, you know, and I agree with, with David saying that uh, juveniles is a particular crisis, but the other one I want to point your listeners to is misdemeanor courts. Um, there is, even if you um, are a county and join the reimbursement program, that doesn't imply, apply to misdemeanor representation. And so the state has no oversight over any of the misdemeanor representation going on. And though people may not envision a friend or family member or the son of a colleague or parishioner getting tied up in a felony charge, everyone can envision somebody they know coming before a misdemeanor court. And misdemeanors have the same collateral consequences or, or similar collateral consequences to a felony conviction. So you may end up you know, losing your professional licenses or losing public housing or not having access to federal student loans. Um, it may bring on immigration consequences and others. So even though the amount of time may be potentially very short that you could spend in jail, the life consequences of that conviction are extremely great. We're going to go to the phones already. We have a phone call from Tiffany. I think Tiffany has a pretty specific question. Tiffany? Hello. Um, yes, I was calling to see um, it's in regards to Hendricks County in Danville, Indiana, and I was just calling to see uh, what options would be um, for someone who is incarcerated being represented by a public defender and um, they don't feel like they're being adequately represented. Um, what options do they have as far as being able to get a new public defender, if that's even a possibility. David Shercliffe, you want to? Well, uh, Tiffany, I, I don't know if you're talking about someone who is convicted now or someone who is awaiting trial. Which which one of those are you asking about if you're still on the line? They're awaiting trial. Okay. So um, if they were convicted, they'd probably be dealing with a state public defender, and that would be a different issue. If they're dealing with a local public defender, um, my suggestion and I can't remember if Hendricks County, I don't think they're part of the commission um, standard. So the best thing to do is to write a letter to the judge, is, is my opinion. If you've already expressed or whoever you know has already expressed their lawyer that they're not happy with what's happening, um, then I would express that to the judge and make uh, specific as to why you feel like the, why they feel like they're not being represented. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank uh -huh. you. Thank you, Tiffany. If you have another, uh, if you, anybody who has a call or a, a question, you can give us a call, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us a question at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us and contact us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Anne and David Shercliffe, um, since you both work as public defenders, I'm hoping you can just give us an idea or a picture of what things are like in each of your counties and what the biggest challenges are with public defense and delivering on this constitutional obligation. Okay. Um, well, let me address misdemeanors first. Um, uh, it is true that misdemeanors aren't under the commission standards, so we don't get reimbursed for them. But we've tried to find other ways to relieve the problems um, of a 
you know, heavy caseload and um, not being reimbursed for those. Um, we've increased all of our courts by um, at least one extra public defender. So I believe we're now up to uh, four public defenders per courtroom. Um, and our traffic court um, as well, we increased them by another attorney. Um, we also have social workers on staff, and it's probably our misdemeanor um, clients um, more than any other clients that are benefiting from um, a holistic approach that we've adopted using social workers to intervene in cases um, and talk about tr how to stop the criminality, you know, help find housing, help find um, jobs, help get them back on medication, insurance, things like that. So um, we've uh, been good stewards of the county money and finding ways to um, help our clients, um, even though we're all facing financial crises. If you join us late, Ann, Sh Ann Sutton is from Marion County. Yes. So now we have David Shirkliff from Lawrence County. Um, I, I think probably the, the biggest challenge, and I think Ann would probably agree because we talked about this a little earlier, the biggest challenge we're encountering right now is the massive amount of CHINS cases that are being filed by the Department of Child Services. Can you explain Which, what that is for folks listening? I'd be glad to. I was going there. Yeah. Um, so a CHINS case is a child in need of service case, and uh, for example, if and this is the kind we encounter in, in uh, Lawrence County, for example, if there is some sort of uh, arrest by a parent because of a drug issue and the arrest is done in the house, and let's say there's three children in the house, then uh, all the adults in the house um, will be filed an action of a child in need of service and likely the children, the three children, will be removed from the home and there will begin a process for the court to determine what's going on providing services to both the adults and the children, and the, the focus is supposed to be to reunify the family, if that's possible. So if you follow all that, then we've got a criminal case with uh, parents, and we've got uh, a CHINS case, two separate actions, a child in need of services case, and uh, they're both going on simultaneously. And, and obviously, a resolution of the uh, criminal case could affect whether or not the parent is able to be reunified with the children. So. Um, we run into all kinds of complex issues that, that uh, require additional attorneys because there are going to be conflicts where one attorney can't represent all parties. And then we've got a criminal case going on at the same time as a child in need of services case. And the issue that we're having is that the DCS is not under any kind of pressure from the county. And so the county is what funds the public defender agency, but our agency is required to take these CHINS cases. And so as these CHINS cases filed by the Department of Child Services escalate, our budget um, is stretched to the max because uh, although we get a 40% reimbursement, we can't control the numbers that the Department of Child Services uh, is putting on us with the CHINS cases. Um, that's one of the biggest challenges we have. And, and I would just say in response to what David Carroll said about um, the state being responsible for funding um, indigent uh, folks. I, I totally agree that uh, there's no reason that, that misdemeanors should not be funded. There's no reason that the state shouldn't also fund CHINS cases in a much broader way, maybe even cre create an individual agency. Um, my understanding is right now, Child in Need of Services lawyers are getting paid on the average uh, for starting salaries more than public defenders or prosecutors are making. And so now we have DCS taking some of our lawyers away. At the same time, uh, we're still having to cover these cases with the bu budgets we have currently in place that were supposed to be designed primarily for um, criminal prosecutions. 
could both of you just um, add to what what David was saying there about the about the drug issues because the opioid issues that are are ravaging the state um, I'm under the impression that's really ratcheted up the number of cases you're seeing it, it it's not only increasing the number of cases it is part of the uh, crisis of TPR chins but also um, we're seeing more now than ever uh, clients with multiple county uh, situations and um, it really is um, difficult to get a client out when they're actually being held by two or three different counties at the same time mm-hmm. to resolve their cases because they're having to travel back and forth to the different cases um, and they get different sentences and it's um, it's immensely more difficult to work them out. And, and in Lawrence County, uh, we just basically got an uh, email from our judge letting us know that the jail is full and uh, we looked at the numbers and we have about, it looks like we have maybe uh, out, of, out of the 130 some people who are in our jail, uh, about 20 of them are actually offenders who are charged with either a sex offense or a violent offense. Almost everybody else is in some way related to some sort of drug arrest, mm-hmm. um, whether it's theft in order to fund the drug, uh, their drug habit or whether it's uh, possession or maintaining a common nuisance, all kinds of things. So it's also the, the drug issue you asked about, Bob, is, is also um, costing the county um, an incredible amount of money beyond what they're paying in the public defender uh, arena. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, the state did create Recovery Works, which is a, um, a funding gap resource for people charged with felonies. Um, as Ann was talking about, if they need housing or they need drug treatment or they need things like that, the state has put some money aside to fund that. But even that is, is stretched to the, to the limits as far as uh, the resources, not the money so much as the the uh, resources to actually treat the people. Like we have clients who will go um, in the morning, they're supposed to go at seven o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday morning to Centerstone, which is our recovery works treatment center, and they may be there for two hours and never get seen. And so we have human resource issues too, especially in Lawrence County. And just to give the listeners some context, when we did our report, we asked a group of, uh, an advisory group of policymakers and criminal justice stakeholders to choose the counties that we went to Um, so that we wouldn't be accused of cherry-picking either the very best or very worst. And Lawrence and Marion County were two of the ones we studied, in addition to Blackford, Elkhart, Lake, Montgomery, Scott, and Warwick. And without a doubt, Lawrence and Marion that you're hearing about here are two of the better systems in the state, and you're hearing how much pressure they have. Now imagine a state that has very, a county that has very few resources, like Scott County, um, who has been hit by um, uh, the drug, drug academic, uh, epidemic. And they just simply don't have the resources to be dealing with uh, what they need to do for the right to counsel. And so you get small counties and rural counties that have engaged in what we call flat fee contracts, where a judge asks a lawyer to handle an unlimited number of cases um, just to sort of have the tacit you know, uh, legal representation there in the courtroom with somebody, but they don't have the time to do anything. We're gonna we're gonna take that um, that issue and expand on. I know Barbara wants to jump in, ask a question <laughs> about that, uh, but we're gonna take a, a, a break now. We're gonna take an early break, uh, and then we're gonna come back because I think we'll get a lot a lot of questions in after the break. If you want to join us, eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or toll free one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can also send us a question news at indianapublicmedia.org. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. 
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Barbara Brozier from WFIU and WTIU. And today we're talking about the role of public defenders in our, our criminal justice system. And we're also, uh, it's part of our Justice for All series that Barbara and WFIU have been involved in and is uh, two-thirds of the way done in terms mm -hmm. of publication of the series. Our guests are David Carroll, the executive director of the Sixth Amendment Center in Boston. He's joining us by phone. David Shercliffe, the chief public defender in Lawrence County and the vice chair of the Indiana Public Defender Council Board. And Ann Sutton, the chair of the criminal justice section of the Indiana State Bar Association and chief counsel of the Marion County Public Defenders Agency. David Carroll, I want to kind of go back and have you elaborate on something you mentioned before the break, which is the way a lot of Indiana counties um, deal with public defense by hiring private attorneys for a flat fee to handle an unlimited number of cases oftentimes in one judge's particular courtroom. Can you explain um, the problem that the Sixth Amendment Center and many legal experts see with that type of system? Sure. Um, maybe I can use a sports analogy here. Um, you know, judges are supposed to be a neutral arbitrator between two sides. So let's say the Indianapolis Colts were playing the New England Patriots, and sorry to be a homer here, but I'll choose the Patriots. Um, the, uh, but let's say I'm that deflated. the referees were able to determine the amount of money the Colts could spend and, indeed, which players could be played. And they would be making decisions like, Andrew Luck makes too much money, so let's just hire someone that's a recent grad from college to do this and plug him in there. Um, let's say the Colts needed um, equipment um, in the way that a lawyer would want to hire an expert or, or uh, an investigator. Uh, they would have to go to the referees and plead and make their case and say, can you give me a little bit more money for helmets and shoulder pads? Um, that's what we're talking about here, is that judges should in no way, shape, or form be um, uh, interfering on the independence of the defense function. In fact, it was Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in a case called Strickland v. Washington that says um, independence of the defense function is a constitutional imperative. And yet throughout um, Indiana, judges are overseeing these contracts with individual attorneys um, to handle unlimited number of cases. I see David Shorecliffe shaking his head over here in agreement. I don't know if you want to elaborate at all on, on those points. Oh, absolutely. I, I um, have worked with a few attorneys who are in different counties who don't 
um, they're not in uh, the Public Defender Commission system, and they have basically said to me there are certain things they know they can't do in front of the judge that hires them. And for instance, I, I've worked with a woman who you know has two kids as a as a single mother, and she can't afford to lose that uh, income, and so she is beholden to whatever she thinks the judge wants her to do in certain things, uh, in certain cases, so that she can continue to maintain that income. I think that's a real problem, and I think David spells it out well. Barbara, in your, your first story in this series, you talked to, uh, was it in Johnson County, yes. where they have a system like this. And there was, a, I think everybody in Johnson County said there's no problem with this. They, they did. You know, I spoke to a, a judge there, Lance Hamner. I spoke to the chief prosecutor, um, Bradley Cooper, and they adamantly said, this is not an issue. Rich or poor, you get the same type of defense here. Uh, but we, what we observed in the courtroom was very different. And a lawsuit that is now um, has been filed against jo- Johnson County alleges that that is that is far from the truth. And that is one of those systems with private attorneys being paid maybe fifty-five thousand dollars to handle all of the public defense cases in one judge's courtroom. We're going to go to the phones. We have Ed from Owen County on the line. Ed. Hi, yes, thanks for taking my call. My question is, uh, I understand up to a year or two ago, all misdemeanors were handled by our counties and felonies by the state. But then recently, they decided level six felonies would be the onus of the counties as well, which takes into account all the meth uh, convictions and such. But our jails are already overcrowded. Why did the state put that on the counties? So you're speaking to the jail issue in terms of local jails taking on the level six felonies instead of the Department of Corrections. That's correct, yeah. And then I understand uh, Terre Haute had to spend a million dollars farming out some some of these uh, level six felonies uh, to other counties because they were overcrowded. But why does the state not handle that anymore? Uh, that brings a, a, a good point. I don't know if either of you want to respond to that. Um, I, I kind of deal with that on a daily basis. In Marion County, we've had that issue as well. Um, I think that the intent of the law was good, was that they wanted to bring people charged with a level six, which isn't you know, e- extremely serious as a crime goes, um, back to their community and with the hopes that instead of being incarcerated, they would go um, into programs. But unfortunately, the programs aren't always there. So we're all facing the crisis now of um, from that bill of overcrowding. All the Not all the counties. Many of the counties are engaging in this moving people around. Marion County um, has engaged in moving clients around that are serving those sentences. Um, we have a recent report um, just as of yesterday that um, they have been able to bring some of the people back to Marion County, which is always better. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, w- it was somewhat of a unfunded mandate for the local jails to try to accommodate um, this influx of people serving very short sentences for the most part, um, under two-year sentences. Ed, I think that issue, if you, uh, if you think that should be a return to a different system, that's something you should talk to your legislators about because I think uh, these guys in this room just they have to follow what the legislature did in terms of Sending those phone Well, that, that's true, but I would say th- this. Um, in Lawrence County, we have been focused on um, creating a treatment center that uh, the local, you know, anybody who's charged or, or who's involved with mental health or drug issues would have somewhere local to be. And I know the governor um, has appointed somebody to basically oversee all that, and we've gotten some response from the state on that. 
one of the things that that's interesting, and I, I know Ann said the intent was good at the time. You know, the Department of Corrections has indicated Ed that they've saved over ten million dollars with this with this program. Um, and what we're finding out is that money's all going to be spent by the counties who are having to build new jails in order to house all these uh, level six offenses. And so hopefully there'll be a meeting of the minds and some sort of aid to the counties as they now have to deal with a new set of uh, um, uh, qualifications on who they can put in their jail or who they have to house. All right, Ed. Thanks oh. a lot. Right. All right. Thank you. Uh-huh. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. News at indianapublicmedia.org if you want to just send us a question or you can follow us on Twitter at, at Noon Edition. David Carroll, I'm hoping you can chime in and maybe give us a, a wider perspective here. How does Indiana stack up to the rest of the nation? Is this a problem only in this state or is it just a, one state that's dealing with all of this? No, there's there's a number of states that are dealing with these issues, um, and uh, but I should say that Indiana is in the minority of states that rely on on local government funding and oversight to deal with this. Um, there's uh, 30 states now where this isn't an issue that local government has to deal with, so Indiana is behind the times on that. The other thing I, I should say is that um, we're seeing more and more states advancing the right to counsel um, by by getting state oversight um, and, and um, into place. And more and more of those states are conservative states. So the most recent states have been states like Utah and Idaho and Michigan. We're seeing a, a Supreme Court task force in Tennessee taking on certain of these issues, too. So this isn't um, a, a, you know, purely progressive um, issue. In fact, we think that um, uh, true conservatives who believe in the Bill of Rights and limited, limited government um, would want to address this um, to try to shrink the size of the criminal justice system to help deal with uh, these, these constitutional violations. I want to ask a, a really broad and general question about um, the whole sort of uh, career path, becoming a public defender. I think we've uh, mentioned at least that some public defenders don't make a whole lot of money. Um, You've got overwhelming caseloads. You guys are both veteran attorneys, I think. What makes you want to go into this this line of work? Well, when we hire, we look at um, applications. We look at people who have a strong sense of community and volunteerism. Um, that means a lot to us. I mean, I think if that's ingrained in you, which I think a lot of universities are really um, uh, promoting public service and giving back to the community. So um, like we always like to say, public defender isn't a job, it's an adventure. If you don't have the passion for it, you're going to be miserable. So um, that's but those are the people that are coming to us. And we don't have any problem receiving a lot of applicants for our positions we hire people right out of law school to go into misdemeanor court. Um, our problem is pay and being able to maintain those attorneys. Um, in the past year, we've been in a huge um, uh, challenge with our pay rate. Um, we just can't compete with private law firms and DCS, for example. And even the prosecutor's office has been losing people in droves because government pay just isn't where it should be for attorneys. Mm-hmm. Well, there and. Here's the here's the other component of of being a public defender is that 
every one of these uh, cases that we get uh, really um, are, is a human life. And every one of those human lives, they obviously, uh, the clients that we represent have, you know, parents and spouses and kids. And whatever they go through criminally, um, whatever charges they get and whatever investigation we do and how we connect with them and their families and things like that takes a, an emotional toll. Um, I think one of the things that's really unrecognized is the amount of stress that this kind of, uh, especially in public defense, represents because we do have an overwhelming caseload, we have low pay, and we're doing what we believe is noble. For the most part, I think uh, public defenders are people who are seeking justice, are seeking to support humanity, are seeking to see everybody as, a, as an equal participant in this planet we, we roll around on. And so um, for us to constantly have to endure um, the dehumanization by the system, by the prosecutors, by the judges. I mean, just the very fact that our clients are referred to as defendant all the time. The state's always called the state, but our clients are always referred to this dehumanizing word called defendant. And it's just a uh, takes a, an ongoing toll that our clients sometimes don't like what we do. Um, they're not happy with how we represent them. The state doesn't like us. Sometimes the county council doesn't think we should even be existing. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a, like, should we be alive or not, but that maybe there shouldn't even be a defense system for poor people and this whole judgment of poor people. And we, we take that on. And I, I'm not trying to get over-emotional about it, but we take that on and it takes a toll. And so when you talk about low pay and high caseloads, um, the one thing that doesn't reflect is the constant emotional trauma that we're enduring over and over again, secondhand or thirdhand, depending what the crime is, who the families are, and now that's even get it even gets multiplied when we're basically doing civil work when we do chins cases. When we do chins cases, then we're talking about a breakup of a family where we're trying to figure out um, is this family going to come back together? Are they going to get broken up? Are the kids going to be placed in adoption? Are they going to go to foster care? All those things take a huge toll not only on the people that we represent, but on us as we try to help the people navigate what it is they're going through. You mentioned something that um, David Frank, an attorney up in Allen County, had said to me before. He's dealing with a lawsuit there alleging their system is adequate, is inadequate. And he said, I think part of the problem is no one wants to talk about the fact that these are poor people and that this is a system that beats down on poor people. And if you're not one of those poor people, then, frankly, why should you care? Do you think that's part of part of the problem that, yes. you know, there are people who've never been in these courtrooms and don't know what's going on? They are not us. And that is always a problem. It, it, I, I've been reading a lot of the, the history of the, you know, prior to Gideon and, and, and uh, then post Gideon, uh, the case that David talked about earlier that requires representation of counsel. And, and at, at one point, being charged with a crime was appalling. If you read the Constitution, it was appalling. It was one of those things that it was overreach of the government was always a possibility. And so that's why we had the right to an attorney and a speedy trial and a right to confront and cross-examine and not to say anything and all those things. And, and now no longer is it noble to, to um, espouse those things. It's no longer noble to stand before the court and say we have the presumption of innocence. Instead, um, those those only apply to people who have wealthy attorneys. The presumption of innocence for poor people, just by the fact they're poor, they're already kind of presumed to be guilty. And, and that's a, that also takes a constant toll because there is this social dominance idea that there's the judge, there's the police, there's the prosecutor, and then there's this poor person charged with a crime. Oh, and oh yeah, his public defender. Well, what word do you, what do you use instead of defendant? 
The accused? The accused. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And I just, I mean, just the other day I asked the judge, I said, well, if you're going to call them the state, because on every filing it says the plaintiff is the state, the defendant is uh, John Smith. Well, the, the court always refers to the plaintiff as the state, but never refers to our client as his name. Instead, always refers to them as the defendant. So they, they, they all get lumped together that way. They're all defendants, and so we don't have to really think that they have human lives and things like that. We can just process them through the system. And I don't judge anybody. I think that's just what has happened over time. We've kind of become mindless about it. Okay. Again, our number is 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. That's from if you want to call from Lawrence County or Marion County or anywhere else. Uh, even Boston, Massachusetts, I guess. And you can uh, you can also email us questions at uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at New Edition. We've outlined a lot of the, you know, the weak points of the system and the problems. I'm curious, and maybe, David Carroll, you could start off, what you think the solution is to address some of these. Is it something like a statewide system? Is it funding? David, why don't you start? Sure. There, there's no one-size-fits-all um, uh, indigent defense system that you can pull off the shelf and just say, here, this is what you need to do. Um, there's states that um, predominantly are structured with contracts that work perfectly well, like Oregon, or uh, states that are top-down public defender systems with staffed government lawyers like Colorado, or states that rely um, almost exclusively on, on private counsel paid hourly, like my own state, Massachusetts. So there's lots of ways of doing it. What's important is that the state ensure that they can guarantee that the parameters of the Sixth Amendment are being met in each and every case. So that's, that does mean that there has to be some entity with the resources, both manpower and others, to ensure that each and every um, courtroom is effectively pro uh, providing the right to counsel. So that's, that's sort of the basic minimum that, that has to be done in, in Indiana. But what I was alluding to earlier is I'm not into um, building bureaucracies for bureaucracy's sake. Um, there's a lot of states that are looking at decreasing the need for the right to counsel in the first place. And our criminal codes have become bloated over the years. Um, you know, no one did this with male intent. It was, you know, a, a, a uh, you know, several slices at a time of, oh, let's attack this type of problem, that type of problem. But now that we have these bloated criminal codes, um, the legislature expects uh, police and prosecution to, to handle all this. So, of course, you know, there's many, many, many cases coming into the system. But if, if the legislature stopped and said, you know, maybe we can treat nonviolent, low-level crimes differently, maybe increasing the use of diversion um, so that the right to counsel never comes into play. Maybe we can change some of these crimes uh, to violations, more like a traffic ticket, um, where, where the need for public defenders is decreased at the same time they increase their oversight and accountability. But um, one thing's for certain is if the policymakers on behalf of the people of Indiana want to keep arresting and prosecuting all the crimes on the criminal code, then the answer is they have to increase money to provide effective representation for each and every um, of the accused. Um, again, the right to counsel is the right of the individual person that's been accused by the state. It doesn't matter if a county 
gets most of it right or if they do an effective job on the few cases they bring to trial. You can't triage everybody's rights in favor of one or two just because you find a, a special issue there. Dan, do you want to jump in? Um, yeah, not to. I don't want to repeat anything he said. I agree with what he's saying, um, funding especially. But um, a, an additional thing is I think that when we look at the Sixth Amendment report and we start talking about um, what is the next step, I think you cannot ignore the public defenders. They have to have a voice in this. You have to give them a vote. They should have a say. We know what we're doing. Um, I think that sometimes there is a reaction to assume we're all the same and uh, you know to create a cartoon character of what you think a public defender is I don't think that's fair um, and so I would like to see that you know in the next step um, if a group is formed that public defenders have a voice and a vote because um, it's important to us well and that's and that's indicative of how the system works right I mean so here's the sixth amendment report where no public defenders are included involved in the discussion they're not uh, part of the voting group about what is and what isn't and that's there you go that's a representation of the system right there these are just people out there representing the poor people they don't know anything they don't need to have a voice they don't um, and once again I don't think there's any ill will that that happened I think that we've become mindless to the idea that public defenders are just bad lawyers who don't can't find a job anywhere else until they're doing public defense work well that's clearly not the case but uh, people don't know that unless they actually are involved in the system and come into the courtroom we have a, a question from Valerie which I think is an important thing to to ask here how do you even determine if someone is indigent and qualifies for a public defender and is that standard across the state no, it's not across the state. Of course not. Um, well, in Marion County, the judges decide. Um, we uh, we had a grant, and we had um, IU come in and take, do a study of indigency screenings, and they did come up with a tool, um, and some of our judges are using it, which is great, but based on the federal poverty guideline. Um, so it's still a judge decision whether someone's indigent or not. Um, now, if somebody gets denied counsel, that doesn't mean we wouldn't, if we find that th- if they contact us and they say, hey, I really don't have anything and now I don't have an attorney, we would advocate for them. We would try to get ourselves appointed, sure. I'm, I'm curious if both of you think or either of you think that, you know, people who come into your courtrooms, into the courtrooms across Indiana, not just in your, your counties, but do you think people who are, in fact, indigent need a public defender are always granted one or do you think it's too subjective I, I actually think probably the error is on the other side is that there are probably people who could afford an attorney based on what they're charged with but they're given a public defender um, for various reasons but I, I have not found in Lawrence County that uh, there are people who um, can't afford and, and are not given a public defender usually what happens is if they paid a bond to get out of a certain amount the judge will just say keep your time and we'll take part of that bond to pay for which they can do for reasonable fees so that's what I have seen more often than not and what we found is that it really runs the whole spectrum here right there's yeah. there's some judges who prioritize keeping the docket moving they don't want to deal with someone trying to represent themselves it slows things down so if someone asks for it they'll give it to them then there's judges that really believe that it's their responsibility to ensure the taxpayers that no one gets a uh, a defense attorney if there's even a remote chance that they could get one so they'll ask if you know their family members have money or other things that really goes beyond the scope of what they should be doing so those combinations 
end up with a place where, you know, the level of justice you get can very much depend on which side of a county line your crime is alleged to have been committed. Just a point of clarification here. So um, public defenders deal with criminal cases and Chins cases now. People who are indigent, who need a lawyer for some other purpose, have places to go in Indiana, correct? That's where, correct. Where, are, where would they go? Usually Indiana Legal Aid or places like that. Legal that, Services mm-hmm. Organization? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. also, yes. it depends a little bit on county. Like our county, we also do um, people who are civilly committed. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do contempts, um, and we do some and we do 4D child support. So. And, and so do we. So anything where their liberty would be at stake uh, or money or anything to be taken away from them as it relates to some sort of criminal or court issue, we represent them. But if they have any kind of civil action, divorce, or they even have a small claim suit or a suit against somebody they want to file, I know in uh, Lawrence County we do have a day where you can come in if you don't ha- can't afford an attorney and they work with, uh, I think there's a, well, well, I don't know what it's called, it's a, um, the lawyers in the county who volunteer their time for people who can't afford yeah. Uh, that does bring me to a, another question. What should people, I guess, know going into a courtroom if they're facing a felony or misdemeanor charge um, during that initial hearing? Because it did depend on the county, but there were some places where you know someone had been sitting in the county jail for two weeks before they even had a hearing to get a public defender or where a prosecutor during their initial hearing is trying to offer them a plea deal with no, no attorney present. Right. What do people need to know? Because I sat there and thought, I would have no idea. Exactly. Ask for an attorney often and early. And and I will take you back. I'm glad you brought that up because I wouldn't be worth my weight and salt as a criminal defense lawyer if I didn't say, number one, don't ever talk to the police. I mean, that is just the bottom line. Don't ever talk to the police until you've talked to a lawyer. Uh, you put yourself in danger when you do that. Uh, but then if they're walking in the courtroom... Uh, I can't imagine why you would ever do anything except if you're in jail. I see this happen all the time. There's an initial hearing. They're on a video. The judge is talking to them on the video. The prosecutor sitting at the table. The prosecutor says, well, if he wants to take this, then uh, we'll release him today. And the judge says, well, the prosecutor's indicated that if you'll take this, what do you want to do? Well, I want to get out. Okay. And so then they have the, the plea deal right there. I'm, I, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, that's... We don't do that in Marion County. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is a we qu- saw it, we oh, saw it all across the state, and the U.S. Supreme Court has said the right to counsel applies at all critical stages of a, of a criminal case and has defined what those critical stages are, although they've never said it's a complete list. But they do say a plea negotiation is a critical stage, and so there should never be a situation in which a prosecutor is talking to an uncounseled defendant about a plea deal. I want to get to this question. I think I know the answer, but um, Sarah asked how do public defenders handle eviction cases? I'm guessing that's not you guys. No. Nope. So that would be legal services or some other yeah, group. Call, call the You can call the state bar or your local bar association for right. a list of agencies that do those. Okay. I'm curious if you've you've heard from legislators at all or if you hope that you will hear from legislators because if funding needs to be allocated to help improve these services, that is a legislative issue. Well, um, our local senator, Eric Cook, uh, just got appointed to the Public Defender Commission, which means that he will be very aware of, uh, even more so than he is now, and and I think that's important. The more awareness out there of the the situation we find ourselves in, especially as it relates to Chin's cases, um, is critical. 
we, we've reached out to legislators as well. Very quick question for both of you. So if you go into, you, you've been called, somebody wants an attorney, you go in to see your new client for the first time, what is like a good client versus somebody that you, you're like, oh my gosh, this person's made 10 mistakes already? Is that back to what we were talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not sure what you mean by good client or not a good client. I mean, when I go, anytime they've talked to the police, it's a bad day um, because whatever <laughs> they've said, whether it's true or not true, they've got something on the record. Um, and, and what I've found in, in doing this is that a lot of times when you go in and see your client, especially if we talk about in jail, it's usually different when they come to the office because we have clients, obviously, who aren't in jail. But when we go to the jail, the first thing I'm looking for in talking with a client is to determine do we, do we have any kind of mental health issues going on? Do we have any kind of uh, addiction issues or other things that, are, that are, you're, you're dealing with? And obviously, they're separated from their family. They're, they're feeling alone. They want to talk. I mean, those are all the things I deal with when I first see them. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and we, mm-hmm. as well, we address their needs. Um, we have social workers. We have a large number of social workers now. Um, and our first import, most important thing is to address their needs and make sure they're okay. All right. David Carroll, we have less than uh, two minutes to go. I guess I just want to throw it out there. Any last uh, words of advice for people or what's, what's the biggest issue, biggest takeaway from today? Well, I, th- I think um, people should be encouraged that other states have been able to grapple with this um, and, and create functioning indigent defense systems. I think when uh, we've often found when we release a report like we did, it's almost like, you know, you have to go through the, the 12 steps of recovery. Um, you know, people are angry and in disbelief, and, and eventually they come to a point where they say, we want to fix these problems. So we are seeing some legislators in Indiana starting to, to ask questions. We know there's a, a legislative committee forming around the misdemeanor issue um, specifically. So um, it's not unusual that there wasn't an immediate reaction by policymakers to take up this cause. But we, we do have faith that, um, that people will get this right. and and um, ensure the citizens of Indiana that they, they will have a meaningful right to counsel one day. Yeah. All right. David, la- very quickly, very quickly. Any last Just words? that our clients are citizens. They're fellow travelers, and they deserve the same rights as everybody else. Okay. Thank you, Ann. Five uh, seconds, ten seconds. Um, I just want to shout out to all the public defenders out there trying to do the best they can Amen. with what they have. That's and, right. And uh, they're not bad guys. All right. I want to thank uh, our guests today, David Carroll, David Shercliffe, and Ian Sutton. And for producer Angela Batista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Barbara Brozier, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times, A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.